hi, my name is Nat Paul. I'm OGEN's Director of Educator Support. I see lots of familiar names in the attendees and lots of people who I haven't met yet. So to everyone, welcome. Uh, this is very exciting and very different for us. Um, <clears throat> I want to say at the beginning that we're welcoming everybody. We have people from all corners of Ontario here. Uh, and then even it looks like some people from as far away as British Columbia and even Little Rock in Arkansas, which is super neat. Um, I have a couple of colleagues who have done far more work than me today and will continue to do so. Uh, Christy Pagnuti is a program manager with OGEN. She's the lead organizer for our law institutes and our PD like this one. She is managing the back end and registration and so forth. Um, I've got Michelle Thompson here, who is OGEN's manager of legal and digital development. Michelle is in the chat and seeing all your questions and passing them along uh, and doing a number of other things on the tech side. And not with us, but require acknowledgement as well, is OGEN's fabulous high school intern, uh, Ms. Kelly Chung, who comes to us through the LAWS program, that's Law in Action Within Schools, which is a joint venture of the TDSB and Osgoode Hall uh, Law School and the U of T Law School. Kelly's been great and a wonderful help. Uh, a couple of housekeeping things first. Uh, Michelle has mentioned mic should be off and cameras off. This helps with bandwidth, that's great. Um, many of you will have questions and comments that come out of the presentation. You should feel free to use the Q&A feature, which again, as Michelle said, is at the bottom of your screen. Uh, we may experiment with the chat, but we probably won't because it seems pretty burdensome and it's a little bit distracting for, for the panelists as well. And we will leave time for questions at the end. Uh, I need to say as well that the presentation today is being recorded um, <clears throat> and it will be posted on OGEN's website for access later, including the slides and everything that you see will be available. Uh, we'll put it up. Um, so with that said, uh, it's really a pleasure for me to be able to launch the first presentation of our brand new virtual Summer Law Institute series. Uh, many of you who have been with us in the past are going to recognize that this is a little bit different uh, from what we normally do with our Summer Law Institute. Uh, this is the 19th and the previous 18, uh, we would gather together for a couple of days and we would hear outstanding speakers on compelling topics. We would be physically in each other's presence and it felt, uh, at least for me, like it was the real beginning of the new year uh, in late August. I've never really been a subscriber to this whole January 1st thing. I'm always a September is the new year kind of person. So uh, obviously this was not going to be possible this year. I think that um, as all of us in the springtime watched the COVID situation develop, uh, it became quite clear that we were all going to have to change the way we work. Uh, this is how we find ourselves here. Um, we have an audience which is mostly teachers, if not exclusively teachers. Uh, so it's important to say as well um, that you have as educators uh, shouldered an immense burden um, we thought last year was weird with sort of the labor stuff. Um, and then we saw this year uh, and we saw all of you um, relearning your work at the same time as you were doing it. And it makes me wonder whether in history there has been such a large scale uh, simultaneous shift in the way a group of professionals worked as has been the case for teachers uh, in the last four months. I really wonder about that amazing that people were able to pivot that quickly. It's a stunning accomplishment. Um, now, many of you were uncertain then uh, and are still uncertain about what work is going to look like in the fall. Um, part of why we're doing web-based stuff is our attempt to pivot in order to be a little bit more responsive to whatever circumstances we might find ourselves in. Uh, we want to be able to continue to support our teachers in the province 
and abroad. We think you're amazing, and we think that we thank you for your work. So typically, uh, a gathering like this, we would begin uh, with an acknowledgement that the gathering is happening in a place, and the place had human history before us. Um, many of us are in Toronto, but not all of us. Toronto is the ancestral territory of the Mississauga of the New Credit First Nation. Uh, Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and Huron Indigenous peoples, who are the original nations of, of this land. Um, it's of course not just history. Uh, the Toronto area remains home to a large and diverse Indigenous population, and that must not be lost. I wanna pause here though, um, because in the beginning uh, of 2019, Ogen became associated with a wonderful Métis lawyer and educator and facilitator named Aliyah Horzempa. Uh, among many things that Leah contributed to our work, she's encouraged us to think about how we can do a little bit more with the land acknowledgement than just say whose territory we're on and you know, move along. Um, so everything I say next is entirely informed by Leah's influence, and I thank her for that. Uh, in order to avoid it just being a box that we tick, we begin to understand acknowledgments as part of an ongoing embrace of reconciliation between nations, such that every instance of acknowledgement is also an opportunity to reflect on the status of our relations and our responsibilities. If we're gathering to think about the education and justice systems, we have a responsibility to recall the role these systems have played in the project of colonialism. The Canadian legal and education systems are, of course, settler institutions. In Toronto and elsewhere, these institutions can exist and can work because of legal covenants between Indigenous and European nations. At their heart, they depended on devastation, in theft of land, and repression of people. And so while we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work in this community, we, remind, we remain mindful of broken covenants and of deals made in bad faith and of the need to work, things, work on things to make it right with all of our relations. Gathering virtually might mean a couple of other things. First, it means that Toronto, where I am, is just one of many ancestral territories with which we're engaged and which are supporting us right now. So that point, I note that we have representation uh, from communities ranging from Ottawa in the east, Windsor and Arkansas, Windsor first for the CanCon, then Arkansas in the south, uh, Dryden to the north and Vancouver to the west. Um, and in this way, our gathering represents at least 18 different treaties, probably more because I wasn't able to figure out where everybody was when I looked for it. Um, so we hope that in all of our own communities, we all try harder to learn the history of those treaties and to learn about the ways in which these covenants have impacted the people who made them, locally and specifically. Second, uh, it strikes me that virtual meetings like this raise really important questions about physical space. We might think that with technology like Zoom or Google Classroom or whatever you're using, somehow we become less tied to physical space. There is this philosophical dream of escaping the body and escaping space. Um, <clears throat> so some ways this is true. I think everybody recognizes that we're lucky, lucky to have this flexibility. Um, in other ways though, the limitations of virtual interaction highlight one of the cornerstones uh, in indigenous knowledge all around the world. Uh, and that is that place and land are tremendously important they matter a great deal. 
And until we can figure out how it is that we're going to live without bodies, it's going to continue to be that way. Um, so to acknowledge land is also to acknowledge how land sustains us and connects us to one another, uh, and to acknowledge the ways in which settler cultures have worked to sever and co-opt these ties and the work that we can do to protect them. So uh, our first speaker in the webinar series is going to help us understand how teaching can contribute to this kind of activism. I give you Charlene Bearhead. She is an Indigenous educator and activist, in addition to co-authoring a series of children's books in which a young Lakota boy explores elements of his culture. Uh, Charlene currently serves as the Director of Reconciliation for the Canadian Geographic Association. Prior to this, Ms. Bearhead was the first education lead for the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation and the Education Coordinator for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. In this capacity, she was the developer as well of Their Voices Will Guide Us, which is a curriculum resource, a student and youth engagement guide to support implementing lessons from that inquiry into the classroom. With that, I ask you all to join me in welcoming Charlene Bearhead, who comes to us from just outside Edmonton, I think, in, in, uh, in, in um, Alberta. Charlene, they're all yours. Um, I would just like to acknowledge, I really appreciated the explanation of the, the land and territory acknowledgement and the, the idea that at Ogen you're digging deeper. And I think that as we as we see and hear and experience people doing their territory and land acknowledgements when they're speaking and at meetings and, and whatever the gatherings might be and the coming together, it, it almost serves as a bit of a, not a measuring stick, but it kind of, the way people acknowledge the territory really demonstrates how far down the path I think we are in the learning and reconciliation and and um, I just want to speak to a couple of things that, first of all, I know a lot of people, I hear people say reconciliation's become a buzzword. And I want us to remember that reconciliation can only be a buzzword if we let it be a buzzword. And really very much like land acknowledgements can only be rote and superficial if that's what we allow to happen. And so for some people who are very, very early in their learning, doing a basic land acknowledgement in and of itself is a big step. And this journey of reconciliation and reconciliation is just that, it's a journey. There's, I mean, if somebody ever gets to the destination, please let me know. I don't expect to see that in my lifetime, but I know it's a journey and a journey is a series of small steps. And as long as those steps are going in the right direction, I feel like we can have some hope. And so it excites me when I hear and see and experience people doing deeper land and territory acknowledgements and really exploring what that means uh, because it's an indication that people haven't stopped because they think they've arrived and uh, because I, I don't think any of us have. The other thing that really excites me about, although it's very different for me as it is, I think for all of us to be doing this work virtually as opposed to be traveling to someone's territory, acknowledging your visitors. So virtually I am visiting you from Treaty 6 territory. Um, the shared territory of the Nakota, the Dene, the Cree, and the Métis. So I've chosen uh, the Turo Wampum as a backdrop today, partially because some of you are in Odinoshone territory, 
um, partially because it's a covenant and a legal agreement. And the other thing that I think is really interesting to explore is although I'm situated right now in Treaty 6 territory, people recognize that it's Cree territory. People are starting to recognize more that it's Dene, originally Dene territory and shared Nakota territory that is Métis homeland. But what many people don't know is there's a place, um, the band is called Michelle Band, that's, very, that's right here. And it's Odenoshone, in fact, Mohawk people who happened to be, and this is how far people traveled for hunting. And it's really, really important for us when we're talking about law, when we're talking about legal systems with our students, when we're thinking about those things ourselves, I think it's very important. And the, the virtual gathering sort of reminds us of this a little bit more because we're not in one territory learning together. But it doesn't matter what we're learning and what we're teaching and what we're sharing we need to be clear that there is no such thing as the way to do it. These are the legal systems. These are the structures. These are the laws. That, that's, not a, that's not a thing. It's not real. It, it's not realistic. But that in that particular territory, with the original people of the particular territory, within the land, the legal systems, the governing systems, the health systems, the social systems, although there are common threads, they are unique to the people of that territory. And so for as educators, we can take a look at resources, uh, guides, examples of education materials, such as their voices will guide us and know that that's a starting point, but we really can't do justice to the work that we're doing if we're not engaging with the people of the territory and learning with uh, and from the people in the territory. So I, I just want to acknowledge that. And then a couple of other things. Um, first of all, reminding all of us that nothing exists in isolation. So although that's the way the Western education system is set up, that everything is in topics, um, in course outlines, it also, that it's very separated and there's a finite amount of time and we, we balance all that out, that nothing exists in isolation. And I think it's especially important when we think about Indigenous women and children. Uh, our history, treaties, remembering that not every territory has treaties, that treaties are still post-contact, that there's, there, there's knowledge that goes back thousands of years to time immemorial. And I really want to be clear for every, all of the participants that I don't actually know anything. Um, I have experienced some things like every one of you has. I have been the benef I've benefited from knowledge that people have shared with me, um, the knowledge in our community and family. But one of the things that I believe to be very, very important is that common sense would say to me that if systems have worked for thousands of years where there's been harmony with the land, there's sustainability, there's relationships and diplomacy between nations. I believe, and that's just my belief, that it makes sense that it doesn't matter what your heritage is, that if you live on a particular territory, if you're living in a particular place, the land, the people, the teachings that have sustained all forms of life from the beginning of time probably give us some pretty good uh, information to, to base our lives on. 
So I just want to share that because we're talking today technically about their voices will guide us about Indigenous women and children and the law, but really none of that um, exists in isolation. And so we're going to share a series of slides. And I just want to be really clear that put these together as some of the examples, we would be here for the rest of our lives if we wanted to take a look at every human rights violation that's happened. And I want to be clear that we have to stop talking about things like residential schools and the past system and you know, the systemic racism. Now we can't continue to talk about these things as though they're bad decisions made by bad people or, or people who have made poor decisions. They're human rights violations. They're breaches of natural law. They're breaches of some international laws. And, and we need to look at them in that way. So I, I'm going to go through a series of slides that I hope will take us from the concept of natural law and to situate ourselves there, thinking about indigenous law and then into Western law and to think about how those things might help us shape the way we're teaching and the way we're engaging our students and the way we're thinking and the way we're talking, not only in our classrooms, but just in our communities overall. So I want to first talk about the, the concept of natural law and what that is and, and reminding people, okay, so next slide. <laughs> there we go. That, so I've only given a couple of examples here because again, so here we have one from Tyson Atlio and just talking about how basically everything is one. And so even to, to define what is natural law, I'm not completely sure that it's so important that we say, that's a, it's a very Western concept to say, this is the definition of natural law. But what is the premise of that? That's the, to me, that's the very beginning when we think about what's natural law. So here, when we take a look at, um, in a Coast Salish, um, well, in this case, New Channel, it talks about lessons in respect, love, caring, and teaching. And it's just basically that everything's connected. If we go to the next slide, we see a definition of Wakotwin. And Wakotwin in Cree is the concept that we're all related, we're all connected, and as, not as in we, the human beings, but that all forms of life are connected. And so you can see that, I'm just gonna move us out of the way that uh, when we talk about that, so in this case, Matthew Wildcat, another example that I, I chose was to say that first, everything is related, human and otherwise. Secondly, that all is animate and has spirit. And the third, um, that there are, it's all around relationship. And so that in and of itself, I think it's very important. Again, I'm, I can only share with you my, my view and perspectives. But I think it's very important that we help our students understand how completely different even the concept of law is when we think about natural law, indigenous law, Western legal systems or Western law. Um, and very much along the lines of science, one of the things I really object to in, in our education systems is when people refer to science and indigenous ways of knowing. And I feel like even in that language, it basically indicates that science is something that's somehow fact-based and indigenous ways of knowing and being are lovely. Uh, and and it's, it's almost like it's window dressing or 
it's a lovely way to be. And it's, it's, not, it's Western science and indigenous science. And it's Western law and it's indigenous law. And both are valid. And I just feel like it's really important just how we use the language. We talk about language revitalization in indigenous languages, but I also think we have to be really, really keenly aware of how we use English and what that, what the impacts are. I think especially when we're talking about in, in legal systems um, and, and in, and I don't even want to call it justice systems because so far we have nothing even remotely close to a justice system. And we have various versions of what could be a legal system. So just to think about what that might be, and I really encourage every educator that's here with us today and those that you'll be in contact with, engage with the people of the territory. Now, I, I recognize that many of you will be our people, the original people of the territory that you're living within your own nations as well. Um, but we know that you know, sometimes Indigenous educators, and I just want to clarify that I'm using the term Indigenous because we're in so many different territories, but we know there's not, that's not even a thing. There's no such thing as that there's not an Indigenous nation. So I'm using that as a placeholder for are you in Abenaki territory, are you in Dene territory, are you in Cree territory, wherever it is that you are. Um, just because a person is a member of that nation where you live also doesn't mean that that person that their expertise is in indigenous legal systems or in their legal systems, but that they'll know the people of the territory will help to guide you to the people that you do need to know who are the experts. So I just really want to encourage that. Okay, we'll move along because I can talk forever and we might never get through everything. So next slide, Michelle. So, and I just then also want us to think about so there's natural, oh, no, not that one, just the one before. We're still on Indigenous law. This is why I'm really happy that I'm not the person running the slides because then it's not my fault. No, we're just going the wrong direction. Okay, well, I'm just going to talk about Indigenous law and Michelle will find her way back to the slides. So don't, don't move any further forward. So Indigenous law, um, Val Napoleon, I've got a quote from Val Napoleon here where she talks about uh, it's how we govern ourselves. And I feel like it's even more how we live. There we go. Thank you. And I think even that, when, when people talk about law from a Western legal perspective, it's about control and enforcement, really. It's about who has the power, who makes the decisions, and how we make sure everybody follows those. Um, and, and it's about punishment. When we think about Indigenous law, it's the, the laws of how we live. So how do we look after the water? How do we gather food? How do we share those things? Who has access? Um, you know, um, distribution and, and making sure that everyone is taken care of as well as political, economic, and social systems. But it's really, I think for many of our students that are non-Indigenous, even the concept that we use the term law in something that's not about rules that somebody imposed that somebody else is enforcing and that if you break them you're wrong so it's really about living together in a good way so i i feel like it's very important that if we're doing any sort of work with our with our students that we can't just jump right to here's the topic we're talking about murdered and missing indigenous women and girls first of all there's 
so much more to it. And we don't ever, we should never be teaching about something as though the issue defines the people and it takes the humanity out of it. And we should never be talking about issues that happen as though that's, that's all there is to the story and the picture. So we need to, I think if our students don't understand sort of the concept, at least the beginning concept of natural law and indigenous law and situate themselves there, they never connect to it on a human level. So when they start to learn about the human rights violations and the systemic racism and the impacts on families and the oppression and the violence and all, and all of those things, it stays here for them if they don't connect with that on a human level. And so before we even go to the place about talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, we need to talk about communities and societies and nations and structures and, and the interference with those. And I'm not going to say the destruction of because they're not destroyed because people are conti continue to live um, through those laws. So next slide. Next slide, Michelle. Next slide. Okay, there we go. Thank you. So Western legal systems, the only reason I, I wanted to put this up is you'll see that I put in Canada. People get offended when I say Canada or what we now call Canada or what's referred to now as Canada. I'm not completely sure why we get offended about that. It's just the truth. The reality is that nations, Indigenous nations, existed long, 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 long before Canada became a thing that somebody created. It, it's not something that was naturally here. And we can have good conversations and honest conversations and, and move towards positive change and encourage and inspire agency for change in our students and in communities and in ourselves if we can't even manage the simple truth that Western legal systems in Canada are something that are very new compared to Indigenous legal systems. So I just, just wanted to frame that. So we'll move along. Charlene, I just want to let you know, um, I think my advancing the slides is on a bit of a delay for when it shows up to you. So I, it'll take a couple seconds. Okay, sorry, I'll be more patient. So again, as I said earlier, we could be here forever, um, but I just really want to look at a couple of examples. So what is it that has caused, you know, this breaking of the law and indigenous people in and struggles with the law? And so here's an example. I'm going to have to move along far more quickly now. But when we take a look at... Um, in 1885, the largest mass hanging in the history of this country because people were starving and eight men were hanged for their people coming together to do what they had to do to feed their families. So there's, there's an example of breaking the law. I'm going to move a bit more quickly now. Sorry, Michelle. So I really encourage people to look um, in their own territories. When we think about, I think this picture is so telling in the, in the upper corner where you see that the police who are supposed to be the representatives, the RCMP is supposed to be the representatives of, you know, protection of families and communities pulling at this mother 
and the and the women and the abuse of the women and the destruction in residential schools and the whole time of residential schools and taking away of the children. And I believe, and I think many people would agree that the women were targeted, indigenous women were targeted for two, I would say lots of reasons, but I would say two main things that I want to touch on is one, because the women are the strength and the core of the communities. And it was so foreign to the settlers, colonizers, that women would have what they would perceive as power, that they would have rights, that they um, were revered, that they were honored, that they respected, that they had an equal role um, in the communities was so foreign to them that they had to break that, I think, to see, you know, to make the changes that they wanted to make because that was a strength. But also when you break down the structure of communities, many of which were the women were the core of that, that started to unravel the fabric of the nation and the community. And um, residential schools was a huge, huge, huge part of that, the, the destruction um, or attempted destruction, I want to say, of systems. Okay, we'll move on. The reason I'm bringing in something such a script is I also want to remember that not only are the distinct nations within First Nations, but with, with Métis, with Inuit. And so, you know, in 2013, all this time later, then there's the recognition in the Supreme Court that, oh, well, look at that. It was actually a legally complex system, which really means purposefully developed within a legal framework that would stop Métis people from actually being able to access script. And so I think that's one of the things that's also very important is for students to understand early, early on that the law has also been used as a tool and a weapon to, as part of the colonization oppression. Uh, and so it's actually used not to protect Indigenous people, but to violate their rights. We'll move next. And I, I just like to bring up, and I think it's important when we take a look at Louis Riel, I feel like is a prime example where, you know, the Métis in, in Red River used the due process and tried to actually work within the process. And Louis Riel was, you know, the duly elected representative, I think in three different elections and was never actually permitted to take his seat in the House of Commons. And of course we know how the rest of that played out. Okay, we'll move along. And again, one example, one small example is, um, and it's not, I'm not saying it's small because it's huge and it was, it was degrading and again, a human rights violation, but how legislation and law was used um, also against Inuit. And so the Inuit identification system where again, people were dehumanized or at least there was an attempt by the, the colonial society and the colonial governments to dehumanize um, Inuit. Move along. So I, I put beginnings of change, but I, I think I want to be really clear too that when we talked, I talked earlier about nothing exists in isolation, but it's also not a linear timeline. 
we have a be we have beginnings of change. You have something like Dalgamuk, where there's a recognition that oral testimony um, of Indigenous people, and it, it affirms. And I want to remind us, and Satsan reminds us of this often, that any of the laws or the precedent-setting cases, decisions, they don't grant equity or grant legal status or grant nationhood to indigenous people, all they can do is recognize that those are inherent and no Western legal system can grant or, or take away those rights. Those are inherent rights, but in the, it changes the thinking, or at least it hopefully helps to shift the thinking in the larger legal context that oral testimony is recognized as being valid. And we then see that and the impacts that that has in things like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that in the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and, and in other cases. So it's a smaller sort of rebuilding of that social fabric and, and the laws that govern the, way, the ways that people live. Okay, next one. And then we'll just go through a couple of these. I just wanted to highlight a couple more. Sparrow was really um, an important case that again started to build up on that and then we move I think Daniels is next can't see the slide but I think Daniels is the next one that I've got here um, <clears throat> again and, and let's remember so Daniels case is one after years and years and years of fighting and then where's the action on that and we know this we can take a look at the um, human rights tribunal case that Cindy Blackstock the Caring Society um, and AFN have have been fighting for so many years. We get these precedent setting cases and then it takes the government years to either take some sort of action that actually implements the decisions or we, you know, we're looking at, we're now over a year out after the national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and there's almost, well, basically no action on that. So we'll continue to move. And so I just say here, you know, there's endless headlines and I wanted to put this into, and, and then the next slide as well, to just encourage people, we need to get that close to home for your students. Have your students look at some of the things that are happening really close to home. This one is really important to me. I, I just really think this image is important because when I think, when you think about through the fur trade, through, um, you, you know, federal, create the creation of federal laws, um, the creation of what are referred to as provincial laws, um, police system set up. The women are targeted and yet I just really encourage you to have your students reflect on, and images are a great way to do this. In this case, it's in Wet'suwet'en territory and the water protectors, that it's still the women in so many cases that are the strength that are the, the leaders that have been able to persevere and that continue to demonstrate that commitment and that unbreakable spirit. And I think it's a really important um, discussion for you to have with your students, not just about women who have been murdered or have gone missing, but about the strength of the women and the incredible resilience and persistence over the hundreds of years of targeted attacks on Indigenous women and girls and Indigenous communities overall, through the legal systems um, to a great extent. Um, so it, here's just another example of when people say, I know we get this a lot, well that happened a long time ago and we're just now catching up on these. So here we are in 2020. 
So we've got this attack on Chief Alan Adam. And if anybody's familiar with the situation, it was the police becoming also aggressive with his wife. And that as he stepped out, and this is how that one resulted, and we'll look at the next slide, I just want to uh, acknowledge some of the things that are happening right now. We are not living in a post-colonial time. So we've got uh, Chantal Moore, who we know was just uh, murdered in New Brunswick by the police. We look at Colton Bushy, the case of Cindy Gladue, um, who the the jury was actually reminded to consider the fact that she was a, a sex worker when they made their decision. So we will continue to move, but I just really want to encourage um, you to really look at the things that are happening right at home and right now as well, and then look back to that. So we need to, and then we're gonna stay on this slide for a little bit. We need to make sure that our students and our colleagues and community really, but in this case, our students, are really have a beginning of a good grounding in what's natural law, what's indigenous law, and what are how are those very different um, than Western legal systems? The devolution of those systems because of the destruction and interference by Western legal systems, but also the strength and the persistence and the resilience through all of that, that it's never, there's never been, this government has never had success. The colonizers have not, they have given it their all and people, and, but also the hope that as we educate young people, as we educate ourselves, as we open up our minds, as we start to really recognize and don't have to get defensive and dispute things, but try to understand and learn from the systems that, you know, have guided the way people live for 10, 20, 30,000 years that maybe we can all benefit from that and that we can learn with one another and bring those things together as well. So um, that was really our process when we developed Their Voices Will Guide Us. So I appreciate that, you know, the recognition from that, that I was the, the developer of this resource as the education coordinator for the National Inquiry. But like anything that, you know, has any value and merit, it was by bringing together Indigenous and ally educators uh, from across the country to put together one path, and this is one resource that could potentially be useful. <clears throat> so now I believe that the link to this guide was shared uh, with, with participants. I'm getting old, people, sorry, I need my glasses. But <clears throat> just a reminder to participants that there are two versions of this. There's the PDF and the Word version, and that we created the Word version specifically because my hope is that you will take any parts of this guide that are useful to you within the context of the territory and the people and the, the, the laws, um, indigenous laws in the area, that you will create your own guides. <clears throat> the very, to me, the most important piece, um, component of the whole guide is on the inside cover. I just want to bring this to your attention. It says, this guide is in the public domain. Anyone may, without charge or request for permission, reproduce all or parts of this guide. So please do use whatever makes sense to you. Um, yes, that's very important. So I just want to go through the guide a little bit and just sort of highlight some of the points. So in pages five to nine, I think the teacher preparation is always very important because we have found ourselves as educators and put teachers in in positions over the last many years, and it's an exciting time to be an educator, I think, 
where people are responsible. And oftentimes we have teachers that are non-Indigenous say, I'm afraid to do this. I, I don't want to do something wrong. I don't want to be disrespectful. We all have a part to play in this. We all have a role in this social justice movement change. Um, and we all have agency. And, and our students have agency in that. So it's more about preparing yourself the best you can, working with people of the territory. We're not asking people to teach about Indigenous law and cultural protocol because I don't have the right to do that either. But we have a responsibility to teach truth. We have a responsibility to model that and to educate ourselves. So the first like pages uh, five to nine are really around uh, teacher preparation. I just want to let people know it was shocking to me when I joined the National Inquiry and education was with the research team. And the first meeting that I was at when one of my colleagues actually was responsible for compiling all the commissions, reports, inquiries uh, over the last 50 plus years around missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And there were 107 that had that were already that had already taken place. Less than 4% of any of the recommendations were ever actioned. To me, this is why education is so very important. This is how we're going to make change. As we raise a whole different generation of young people that recognize their agency for change, that recognize their place um, in this, that we all have a role. So in the teacher preparation section, there are just many, many, many references and links to the great work that people in community have been doing for 50 plus years. But this is not something new that we magically wrote because we are a group of people that came together. But it I was- I just wanna note quickly, sorry, um, just in case anyone needs it, we've dropped the link to this resource into chat. So if you're not keeping eyes up on chat that you wanna be able to follow along, um, it's right there. Sorry, Sharon. No, that's great. Thank you, Michelle. And I'm just gonna go through quite quickly because I am absolutely certain that everybody can read. Um, but just wanna highlight some things. So, Page 11 uh, to 15 is terminology. And one of the things that I find a lot and, and I have in common, I think, with colleagues is that for many teachers, it goes back. It's as simple as what term do I use in this particular case? I'm not sure. I, I'm afraid I'm going to use the wrong language. And so we really work to try to make it as comprehensive as possible without it being, you know, this being a six volume uh, resource. Early years. I really just want to speak to early years because during the time of TRC, the national educators and especially administrators are really nervous about these sorts of um, topics, as they call them, issues that, that we're learning about with early years. Early years is absolutely the time to start teaching our, our children, but really it aligns more with that component of, of natural law and Indigenous law. So if you take a look at pages 16 to 19, again, this is not a series of lesson plans where you check the box. This is a series of some themes to explore. We've got ideas about how you should prepare the environment, um, inquiry base, other examples of resources, because this will be very different depending on the dynamics of your class as well. But it's very important that the children that are very Young children understand justice and equity and um, what's fair more than 
you know, as we get older, sadly, somehow we unlearn those things because we think we need to be politically correct and whose politics are we following? So ideas there, middle years. The middle year section that we did, it, I feel like it's really a bridge where we still have a lot of the themes and, and ideas that we have in early years talking about kinship and interconnectedness and how we're all related, and how all living things are related and the roles Again, nothing's in isolation. So we also have to understand the roles and responsibilities of, of men and boys and, and the roles and recognition of two-spirit, LGBTQ2S people, um, because it's all, all connected. I think the middle years we attempt to have a bridge so we're starting to bring in more and more understanding of the realities of the human rights violations, about the oppression, about the violence, about the, the abuse, about the interference that colonial systems um, have, the, the interference with indigenous systems that's really um, brought about a devaluation of, of women in the roles. So really kind of a bridge where we're, we're bringing those together. And then pages 26 to 31, and if we go to the next slide, you can actually see um, one of the slides about what that looks like in case you aren't. So there, here's some of the themes to explore. So this burgundy-ish color is more uh, um, for high school. And this is where we really cut to the, you know, the cold hard truth, um, but also really emphasizing that we can do everything about it. The only thing that will, the wrong thing to do is to do nothing. And that we may make mistakes along the way, but if we walk together, if we have indigenous and non-indigenous people walking beside one another, we'll find the ways um, that, you know, we can make change. It's the, only, it's the only alternative we have that I know of. If somebody knows the magic answer, please write it in chat. Um, all, all I can think of is that we just need to continue to be really courageous in acknowledging truth, but also really courageous in taking that on and finding our place in that and, and being real about the fact that who, who are the, those that are most profoundly impacted when you take a look at the destruction historically, and it's always been, you know, targeting of women um, as a strength. So move to the next slide. So here's just a little example, in, and Nat said earlier that um, uh, my husband and I also co-wrote a series of children's books. And so it was, it's really important to us to build that in just, this is a series about a little 11 year old boy. And in this book, Catcher of Dreams, uh, he's talking about his little, he's got a baby sister that's born that day. And so he does talk about maybe she'll be a jingle dress dancer because he's a little grass dancer. And maybe she'll be able to make bannock because he loves bannock and his mongoshin, his grandmother makes bannock. But there are ways that we can weave this in that are really important. And in, here Paul is dreaming about his sister. And he says, what if his little sister became the first Nakota woman to rule on a Supreme Court case? And what if it was a case designating sacred sites of the First Nations to protect heritage sites completely under the control of the nation? It, assure your administrators, it does, it's not, you know, the kids can handle this, the adults who have a hard time handling the truth. Um, and next, I've got one more example on the next slide. Um, and that's where um, little Paul is teaching one of his little classmates that's non-Indigenous. Uh, as they're at a power and say, can you imagine that this was illegal? There are examples all around us 
that we we can pick examples sadly we can pick examples out of the air about to demonstrate these injustices to just get the conversations to start so next slide so basically um i i call upon each of you i can't tell you what that looks like for you because I don't know you. I don't know your strengths. I don't know your networks. I don't know your gifts. I don't know your students, but you do. And so I want, I'm asking you to think about what your role is in reconciliation action and heavy on the action. So we can teach truth about all these issues and start really early, explore the history and realities. And I think it's very important that we don't just talk about history. But what are the realities right now and where did those come from? Because if we find the path, if we, if we can recognize and see the path in, we know the path back out. And then really encouraging, uh, you know, more and more young Indigenous people to be a part of and, and shaping this, but to also encourage and educate and inspire non-Indigenous youth. Because if we can get to the place, and I really believe this is the strength in education, where when we've got negotiations, discussions, lawmaking practices where the Indigenous people at the table aren't spending all their time having to educate the non-Indigenous people about what that even is, what it looks like, what the history is, so that the work can actually happen, that would be, I feel like, a really incredible beginning. So with that, um, I am going to stop talking now and hope that, that there's something in there somewhere that's helpful, that resonates, and leave it open for questions. Okay, if anyone has questions, uh, which I'm sure people do um, after what Charlene has said, uh, feel free to drop those questions in the Q&A uh, function that you see at the bottom of the screen. Um, we had a, a comment come in while you were talking, Charlene, um, that said, I can't agree more about how and whose language is used and its impact on how the law and ethics are interpreted and applied. Um, what's, what's your vision for how uh, that can work in classrooms, for how we can start having conversations, especially with uh, high school students or teenagers, um, about some of those nuanced things in language. Okay. So, I mean, I, I find myself in those conversations all the time. So, I mean, I, I'll give you an example of today with sort of no, no disrespect. And I think it's really important that we, and that we, we talk a lot about ethical space in the guide, that we need to create that environment so students know that we can get right to it and, and that you're not gonna be judged, unless you're judging, but that you, that you won't be judged by, but, bring up the questions, have the conversations. It's a safe place. We can really get to it and bring those, those different perspectives in. So for example, today I was, I was on a Zoom call with two of my colleagues who are wonderful and we were talking about Guardians of Mother Earth initiative. And it was around a film project and one of my colleagues who's great, he's fantastic, he's an incredible ally. And he said, so then we have, and I, I thought I misheard first. And he talked about the Bible. We'll have the Bible and then we'll have the, and then I said, I'm sorry, I think I, I don't think I heard the word right. I thought I heard you say the Bible when we were talking about the film outline. He goes, well, yeah, in the film industry, that's what we talk about. We're talking about an indigenous um, initiative. 
And not that there aren't indigenous people that are connected with the Bible. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is the deeper we got in the conversation as he tried to explain his way out of what it was, it just kept getting worse <laughs> because, and it was like, well, no, but it's a thing where these are the ways that we do things. And I said, okay, then I disagree with it even more. Because for some reason, and the reasons that we know, through this, you know, 200 years or whatever it is of colonization and, and imposed, and I call it superimposed because I feel like it's not even real or natural. It's just something that, you know, the, the, the loudest, most aggressive people move some things forward. Um, there's this view that there is a way to do things, that there's the way to do things, that there's the right way to do things. So for me, if I could give one piece of advice, it's just have lots of dialogue. And if you spend almost all of your time in your class bringing up terms that or phrases that people use, I try not to bring it up right when, at least early on, when the person uses it, because then we embarrass the person and then they feel, you know, like they're shamed. But I certainly keep a running list in my head so that at the next time we have a class or a gathering or a meeting, um, when there's a little bit of an, enough space, we'll say, let's talk about this term. You know how we all, then when you start to bring it up, then everybody in the room admits, yeah, we hear people say that all the time. Or yes, I've said that, or I never even thought about what that actually means. Right, right. Yeah, it's right. funny. I've definitely heard, heard circle the... wagons. Like you hear people still say circle the wagons. Like, are you kidding me? Okay, sorry, I get a Okay, uh, we have another question. Um, Eleanor Johnson would like to have some more information on the children's books that you talked about. Uh, where can she learn a little bit more about those? Okay, um, so the series is called See How to Skin Knows. And maybe, I mean, Nat, I think somebody might have a link that they could drop in. Uh, I'll grab that. Great, it's Portage and Main Press. Um, so, I, we couldn't help it. You can't help, you cannot. And it's just a little, it's a story about a little boy. There's a series of eight books and there's, so there's like the offering of tobacco, the strength of his hair, but you can't really have stories about a, a young person, you know, a little Nakota boy um, talking about his life and his family and sharing things without the, the, the stuff comes up. And we just, there was no way we were going to gloss over that. So in every one of the books, there are some discussions about, you know, I mean, you can't talk about a child being in school without talking about residential schools. You know, you can't. And so because they're early readers, um, I'm going to say gentle. I don't know. I, I think for some people it's not so gentle. Um, but I feel like it's really gentle because it's not slamming. It's just telling the truth. And so it gives, especially for early years, an opportunity an entry point to have some discussions for that and have the students to really start an inquiry process about what does that mean? You know? Yeah. Right. Seeing that has just put that link in chat. So um, hopefully that's helpful. Um, Ivana Smith has, has written in to say, uh, context is everything and say thank you for setting the context uh, in such a useful way for framing material that can feel really challenging uh, to break into and find an entry point. Um, so I just want to share that since that's, uh, that comment came in. Thank you, Ivana. Sylvia. Um, if there are any other questions, feel free to shoot them to me right now. We have maybe two more minutes with Charlene. 
Otherwise, is there anything else that's, um, that you would like to elaborate on, maybe even that is um, that you would really want high school teachers to be able to take away from, from, uh, from this session or to focus on with students? And I recognize that that's, it's in high school that people really um, emphasize. I mean, that's where you take law classes. <clears throat> I'm going to say that that's probably the most challenging time to introduce it, which is interesting in the way our, our education system works. Because by the time we get students uh, in high school, they, their beliefs and attitudes um, their truths have been so shaped already that it's really a difficult time to, they already know everything. I, I always say you should have asked me when I was 19, when I knew everything, you know? So you, it's a really challenging time. And so I think maybe one of the things that I, I think is helpful is that we ourselves pose examples from our own lives as educators, as people that they see as educated to say, you know, I was this age or just last week, I learned this, or here's something that one of, one of my students um, brought up. I didn't know that. And I think really to be vulnerable ourselves so that we can demonstrate to the students in an authentic way that it's okay to not know you think you know, but we don't know, and we're always learning. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's going to be the most challenging time in high school, and I think that we just don't give up, and we continue to try to make it connect. What I've seen as successful is, especially because we have quite multicultural, um, multiracial classes now, which I think is really important. And so if we can also connect some of the things that we're looking at to the experiences of other students with from other cultural backgrounds in our classes that's another way to help to bring um, people in because we know that for some in some faith communities and cultures uh, it's not always um, easy to talk about the importance and value of women and women's rights and it's really critically important that we do that amazing um, just in the last 30 seconds that we have, we have one last question from, from Kathy, um, who's asking how you would suggest that we begin these conversations in elementary schools, um, since there's probably going to be different starting points for different grades and classes. Mm -hmm. I would start by, by really talking to the students and learning and having some guests come into your class, if you can, from, you know, in the community, some grandmothers, some mothers, some community members, I would in the conversation, start the conversations in elementary classrooms around the strength, the importance, all children can connect to how important their grandmother is to them, how important their mother is to them, how important an auntie is to them. I would start with those connections so that there's a real strong heart, mind, um, connection to what are we talking about here and then when we move to topics of um, the, the harder topics the realities of what's happening then the, the students it's so much more meaningful when we think about um, some of these these horrible things that happen when we have such a 
human connection to the people that it's happening to. Thank you so much. I've received just now a flood of people saying thank you for this talk and saying that it's been helpful and useful. Um, so yeah, just on behalf of all of us, thank you so much for being here and doing this. Uh, and a reminder to everyone to please uh, check out uh, Their Voices Will Guide Us, which you can find um, in the links that were in the email you received about this webinar. And we'll be sending out a thank you and asking for your feedback and everything email. We'll reiterate and make sure you have those resources close at hand. Nish, Nish, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Charlene. Thanks everybody for joining us. Take care.